0: Hello and welcome to the latest of our fortnightly Funds Fan podcasts, brought to you by Interactive Investor in conjunction with Money Observer and Moneywise magazines. I'm Faith Glasgow, I'm the editor of Money Observer. And with me today are Carl Caldwell, who is Money Observer's deputy editor. We'll also be joined later on in the programme by Richard Hunter, who's head of markets at Interactive Investor, and Interactive Investor's fund analyst, Theodore Diloff. Now, these have been strange and worrying times for all of us and income investors are certainly no exception. The extreme volatility seen in the markets during March has not returned. But there has been a stream of negative news around investment income over the last month, as as numerous companies have announced cuts or suspensions to their dividend payments. Now, Kyle, you've been following this dividend drought pretty closely. Can you give us a bit more detail on this on the scale of the cuts?
1: Yes, indeed Faith. Well, as you mentioned on the previous podcast Faith, as of the 5th of April, 45% of UK companies had scrapped payments totaling 28.2 billion for between the second and fourth quarter of the year. And over the past couple of weeks since the uh, since episode 7 of the Funds from Podcast was uh, recorded, there's been More dividend cuts announced, but it also has to be pointed out that a a number of firms have pledged to maintain dividends, including consumer goods giant Unilever. But at the time that we're recording this podcast in the last week of April, it is crunch time really, because most of the top five biggest dividend payers in the market for the UK are um, reporting um, updates. First off, we already heard from HSBC on the dividend front, because itself, along with the four other major UK banks, have declared they will not be paying dividends um, following regulatory pressure. BP, and um, the oil giant, uh, outlined its position this morning, announcing that it maintained its quarterly dividend, which was... Um, Year on year was um, slightly higher than it was previously. Later on this week, we'll be hearing from the other big oil major, uh, Royal Dutch Shell, and also uh, pharmaceutical giants GlaxoSmithKline. So of the big five, it's just British American Tobacco that we won't be hearing from this week.
0: So there's a, an awful lot going on this week. Then, um, what do the what does this uncertainty mean for investors in in practical terms?
1: For fund investors, um, I think it's important. you're looking at the historic yield figure that's used on funds because this was based in a snapshot of time that doesn't reflect the current circumstances so do bear in mind that the income that is likely to be achieved by income focused funds and investment trusts in the near future may be far less than the historic yield that is quoted in portfolios and another point to make is if enough income is not being generated by the underlying investments held in funds then this will of course increase the risk that retirees and income draw down who are reliant upon a certain amount of dividends being paid from their pension funds will end up having to draw on capital and that's not a sensible approach particularly at times such as these when markets are highly
0: volatile indeed more recently of course we've had the announcement by the investment association that they have suspended yield requirements for the two equity income fund sectors the UK equity income and global equity income sectors both of them until now have required the funds that are housed in them to deliver an annual yield of, of at least 90% of the benchmark index that that, that being the FTSE All Share for, for UK equity income and um, MSCI World index for the global Sector that's been suspended because of the extent of dividend cuts amongst companies and and some fears that that companies might be kind of cornered into doing potentially dangerous or irrational things. Can you can you tell us a bit more about that, Kyle? The
1: concern was that the having the having these yield requirements for the sectors could result in um, fund managers pursuing shares with higher yields and potentially um, deviating from their investment strategy just to simply remain in the sector it's known as, as a chasing yield and it's, it's an approach that um investors will not want their full managers to be doing so um I do think it was a sensible move by
0: the investment association danger with uh, chasing yield being that potentially you're getting into riskier companies where the yield is high because there th- there's a basic instability or other problem there
1: exactly or it could be you know, it could be simply part of by virtue or uh, well, not by virtue of being in a uh, distressed sector of the market um, and as a result um, a lot of investors are shying away from that particular sector and that'd be reflected by the um obviously the share price will have will have fallen the yield would be higher than it would typically normally be
0: have you got any idea rough guess how long this dividend issue
1: could go on i don't want to hang my hat on a prediction faith but i, I suppose it all does hinge on um how long it'll take businesses to um, operate in some some sort of new normal when the lockdown restrictions do start to ease. Hearing a lot of commentary from um, various investment professionals regarding you know dividends for 2020 falling by X amount, but you don't really see much at the moment of people talking about 2021, 2022, um, which does surprise me because I think it's feasible. that It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a tough couple of years for income investors until some sort of cure or solution is found for this horrible deadly disease because until that until the, some sort of cure is found uh, it, businesses aren't going to be able to operate in a normal fashion
0: yeah apart from the, the few that i suppose are doing quite well out of it anyway these these past few weeks unsurprisingly possibly seen a, a, a number of manager changes amongst funds and investment trusts the most notable one being the departure of alistair mundy from temple bar investment trust on health reasons apparently not to do with coronavirus i think you've been having a look at this story as well haven't you carl
1: he has stepped down from his various fund manager responsibilities um, including the temple bar investment trust and three open-ended funds he manages for uh, 91 his employer and um, they were formerly known as investec and those funds are cautious managed uk special situations and uk total return
0: funds do you know who's taking over as, as manager of, of the funds in the trust?
1: There's two co-managers have taken over all, all four of those funds. They're currently uh, well. They have currently co-managers of the ninety-one global special situations funds, which they have overseen since January twenty sixteen. But in, in in respect of Temple Bar, it's a it's a case of watch this space. Shortly after it was announced that um, Alistair Mundy was going to take an extended leave of absence, they informed the market that they're going to be conducting a, re- a review of its fund management arrangements, and they've served twelve months' notice on Mundy's employer. Which is a uh, ninety-one. That's the the board of directors of Temple Bar. Yeah, that's right. And the, and sorry, I should give the names of the, the two fund managers that have taken over the, all of all the funds. They are Alessandro Vaccarado and Steve Woolley.
0: So they're not exactly household names at the moment. So I guess that we will need to keep an eye on how things go from here. Really. More generally, managerial change is actually one of the key reasons why funds on Interactive Investors Super 60 or Ace 30 lists may be placed under review. Temple Bar is not on the Super 60, but it is on Money Observer's wider rated fund list from which the Super 60 are selected. And it has been placed under review there, just given the obvious uh, lack of knowledge that we have about what's going to happen in terms of the new manager. So that's a question of of, uh, watching this space as well. Now, as I mentioned earlier on, we've got Richard Hunter with us. Um, He is Interactive Investors Head of Markets and uh, welcome Richard. Hi, Faith. It's very good to have you with us. And I'm hoping that you will be able to tell us a little bit more about some of the most vulnerable FTSE sectors, which you've been keeping a close eye on recently. One that we at Money Observer have been looking at quite closely is the banking sector. So, can you tell us a bit about your perspective on what's going on with with the banking sector generally and what the prognosis is?
2: Certainly a couple of uh, issues at the moment. The first one, certainly in terms of uh, UK banks, is that one of the traditional reasons for buying bank shares um, has tended to be um, a decent dividend yield along the lines of what we've just been discussing. Of course, the regulator got involved here, suggesting that banks don't pay dividends for the uh, immediate future. The idea being that uh, that would free up more capital to be able to lend to uh, consumers and businesses in order to keep the uh, wheels of the economy, the UK economy oiled, which is understandable, except to say that um, Lloyds, for example, had had a dividend yield of over 10%, Barclays have made HSBC over 9%, uh, RBS around 4.5%. So there's a significant slice of uh, dividend income which has been uh, removed from the market. The other issue at the moment um, is basically signified uh, by the U.S. banks who began reporting a couple of weeks ago, the canary in the coal mine there turned out to be JP Morgan Chase. They opened the reporting season and they showed that um, first quarter profits had tumbled by 69% uh, and of equal concern they had had to increase around $7 billion to cover what they saw as potential losses to businesses and consumers uh, who were struggling to stay afloat given the economic impact of the outbreak and where we are. Indeed, in terms of the UK, we've uh, heard today from HSBC a very, very similar story. Pre-tax profits down 48% and they've had to increase their impairments from what was previously $585 million up to just over $3 billion dollars. So, without the um, underlying plank of dividend income, uh, and obviously a a fairly hazy economic outlook, it's not difficult to see why HSBC shares, for example, have dropped some 37% uh, over the last year or so. A couple of things in their favour, most notably that um, as compared to the global financial crisis of just over a decade ago, uh, there is little question that the banks are in more robust financial shape than they were this time, 11 or 12 years ago, they're certainly able to withstand the extra extra pressure being put on them. And it should put them in a a situation to do some of that lending. If we look at the uh, again, look at the likes of HSBC from today, its capital cushion actually improved over the last three months to around 14.6%. So I don't think there's any existential threats for the banks. uh, But as investments, um, they're, they're clearly they've got a long way to go in until we can see uh, what what we might look like coming out the other side of this crisis
0: another high profile sector of course is is supermarkets i mean at face value these might seem to be pretty healthy and days for supermarkets given the ginormous queues that seem to be involved whenever i try and go shopping and they've they've certainly seen sales up more than 20 percent over the over the first month of the pandemic but it's not As I understand it, that's simple, is it, Richard?
2: You're absolutely right. And indeed, um, the 20% growth in sales it mentioned was accompanied by an estimated aggregate total of spending in that period of nearly £11 billion, which quite comfortably eclipses the sort of traditionally business period you might expect uh, around Christmas. But you're absolutely right. It's not quite that simple. Of course, they've had those extra volumes and therefore extra revenues coming in. But as we saw from Tesco, in early April, there's rather more to be factored into the mix. Now, what actually played out on the day was that Tesco increased its dividend uh, and actually received uh, criticism from certain quarters for having done that on the basis that they were receiving around £585 million worth of business rates relief from the government. But quite apart from the social community or financial do- donations, Tesco, had made, which could give it a, a reputation in months to come. It was making the simple point that the costs it's incurring were far outweighing that business relief rate holiday. They estimated that it would cost somewhere between 650 million and 925 million pounds in terms of its retail li- lines and additional costs. They have staff on full sick pay, a 10% bonus to staff. they would recruited 45,000 new staff. Staff as well. Mm-hmm. That's quite apart from mm-hmm. any uh, store revamps and distribution complications they might have had. So uh, it's not, as, as you rightly say, it's not quite as straightforward uh, as assuming that supermarkets are singing from the rooftops simply on the basis of increased sales, because that has come additional costs as well as well what
0: are um brokers saying about the supermarkets do they have any positive tips then are they liking them at the moment
2: i think in in general terms um they are one of the favorite sectors at the moment mm-hmm. simply on the basis that um that they're, they're very much uh, in the eye of the storm um we have seen some of that panic buying now subside things almost returning to normal but of course the other thing is that as things currently stand they have gained extra prominence in having either maintained or increased the dividend um, across the board, as we were just mentioning. And of course, that gives them uh, another attraction at a time when we're seeing an increasing dividend drought.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were talking earlier earlier on about this, uh, this, this big dividend drought problem that's afflicting income seeking investors. Are, are there any other sectors where dividends are looking relatively robust that occur to you?
2: Well, Kyle has referred to a couple of them in passing. They, they tend to be the classically defensive sectors where dividends seem to be fairly safe. You've got um, stocks within the FTSE 100, such as Unilever and Reckitt Kaiser. These can manufacture anything from home care products all the way through to bleach to uh, cleaning services product, products uh, and so on. And their dividends are very much seen as uh, almost bomb pros, particularly in this current environment. Again, a hyper defensive sector is the likes of utilities. Clearly, we are still having uh, a requirement for electricity, oil, gas and water, of course. And those dividends tend not only to be fairly stable, but also pegged to uh, inflation plus X percent. I think Kyle mentioned tobacco stocks and the pharmaceutical stocks. We've just mentioned the supermarkets as well. Just to um, add to the points you've made there, Richard,
1: two of those classic defensive sectors, um consumer staples and utilities, they're sectors of the market that uh, Job Curtis, the full manager of the City of London Investment Trust, one of the interactive investors Super Sixty funds, um, has been adding to. He's also increased exposure to food retailers, Morrisons and, and Sainsbury's, which, as you've also highlighted that Richard have posting seen their sales increase during the lockdown. And in addition, he's been reducing exposure to more cyclical areas of the market, namely retailers and travel and leisure businesses and free shares that have completely exited the portfolio are Cineworld, William Hill and Marks & Spencer. And I suppose that other income for managers will be making similar moves at this time in order to ensure that they are able to still generate a certain level of income for their investors.
0: It's clearly a, an, an area where investors need to to pay close attention to the contents of the portfolios they're investing in if they do need um, a, a short term income stream. So thank you very much uh, Richard and Kyle for coming in to talk to us and finally this week we turn to Theodore. You've got another fund from the Super 60 shortlist, I think. You're going to give us a bit of an analysis of it. What is your choice of fund this, this week? It'll
3: Hi, Faye. My pick for this week um, is the MNG Global Macro Bond Fund, which has been run by Jim Levis, who is the Head of Retail Fixed Income at MG since its inception in 1999. It's 1999. What's interesting uh, about this mandate is that it is, the, it is the most flexible across the MNG's retail bond products and has been designed to provide diversified exposure to the global fixed interest markets by taking advantage of different market conditions. Its main objective is to outperform the investment association global bond sector over any five year period, investing in a broad basket of both government and corporate bond issues, currencies, derivatives. And with regards to the investment process, it is almost entirely based on the manager's assessment of a number of micro factors, including economic growth, interest rates and inflation. And in addition, he also applies an overlay of short to medium term market technical views which contributes to the short-term volatility management of the fund.
0: So can you tell me a bit more about what what is in?
3: Sure. This is a go anywhere strategy, which basically means that investors could expect relatively high portfolio turnover compared to other strategies in this sector. As at the end of March, the fund had 118 issuers with significant overweight in the US. And actually the fund manager has been cautiously positioned for a while and added more long duration government bonds to his portfolio at the beginning of the year betting on interest rates to fall further which proved to be the case in q1 although historically levis has been overweight in sovereign bonds more recently he saw an attractive long-term value and increased his corporate exposure in the back of widening spreads with regards to the currencies the managers investment to themes included increasing is US dollar exposure while reducing the funds sterling allocation and taking some profits from the Japanese yen position.
0: What would you say makes it so special?
3: Well, if I need to describe it with one word, that would probably be flexibility. So the fund offers diversified exposure to global bond markets via a approach, which allows the manager to invest in pretty much any type of fixed income security in the world in order to take advantage of the current market environment. As I mentioned earlier, uh, all this comes with a specific target to outperform the funds formal IA sector benchmark over any five year period. And last but not least, performance has also been remarkable. And despite the recent market turmoil, the fund returned over 7% in Q1 compared to an average of 2% for the peer group category. And in fact, the fund has outperformed its peers in the global bonds category over one, three and five years
0: pretty impressive really. I mean, what sort of investors will it particularly suit? Well,
3: in my view, the recent market turbulence proved the importance that fixed income has in a balanced portfolio. And while the equity market was down more than 20%, bonds and especially sovereign bonds stood well the crisis. And therefore, I think this strategy may fit the needs of a broader range of clients who are seeking to add lower risk global exposure to their portfolio while at the same time, uh, gaining access to a range of themes with lower or even negative correlation. And in addition, investors could also anticipate some income paid quarterly, which currently stands uh, at around 1.7%.
0: Thank you so much for coming along to tell us about it, Theodore. And also again to Richard and Kyle. That's all we've got time for for this week. But do please join us again for a, another episode in a couple of weeks time. Thanks very much.